0: Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Our text for our sermon is the second epistle of Peter, chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. To be sure, we were not following cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the powerful appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from within the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We heard this voice which came out of heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the completely reliable prophetic word. You do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Since we know this above all else, no prophecy of Scripture comes about from someone's own interpretation. In fact, no prophecy ever came by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, It would be the height of naivety to deny that a man named Jesus of Nazareth existed, being born sometime between 6 and 2 BC and dying roughly sometime around 30 AD. You would be a fool to deny that because to this day, one of the more precise of the ancient historians was a Jewish man named Josephus. He was alive when the temple was destroyed. In fact, he was a priest and he knew people who would have actually seen this Jesus of Nazareth with their own eye. He functioned in the temple and would have functioned with priests who would remember the day that Jesus was crucified. That solves it. Oh, But then there's a document that was found that was written by Pontius Pilate that was sent to Rome to report to Caesar that, yes, he had a guy named Jesus of Nazareth crucified for being the king of the Jews. If you look outside of the scripture, there is all kinds of of evidence that survived antiquity that makes it clear to this day that a man who came from Nazareth named Jesus existed. But what about his Godhood? Jesus time and time again said he was God, but how can you prove that? How do we know that? And... If he wasn't God, you're wasting your time being here. I'm wasting my life studying this scripture. Let's go ice fishing and spend our money instead of on offering on other things, right? So today we're going to ask the question, how can we be sure of Jesus's godly glory? Because let's admit it, our salvation depends on that godly glory. From here on out, as I usually do, I will be preaching on my own translation of the inspired Greek that the Apostle Peter wrote in, just to bring out some of the nuances that come out clunky in English. So in verse 16, the Apostle Peter says, For we were not following out cleverly invented myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were made eyewitnesses of his majesty. Very interesting, that one Greek word we were not following out, the verb literally is eagerly pursuing in obedience. Have you seen people do that with cult leaders? The cult leader comes up with some big lie and the people end up drinking the Kool-Aid, right? You have to follow them, and of course that cult leader is normally taking advantage of people to gain some money and things like that. But he says we were not Eagerly pursuing in obedience cleverly invented myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Got to hit the brakes there for an application. It is really sad. Many Christian churches today that consider themselves liberal actually do not believe the scriptures are inspired, they think they're cleverly invented myths. So take, for example, Aesop. One of my favorite of Aesop's fables since I was a kid was the boy who cried wolf. Put in charge of the town sheep, he cried wolf and on top of the mountain. And the townsfolk came a running until one day there actually was a wolf tearing into the sheep. And the townsfolk said, I'm tired of being the, the laughing stock of this kid's jokes, right? So they say, just like Aesop's fables teach stories, stories like the virgin birth just teach you that God loves you and would have liked to have taken on human life for you. But why those miracles couldn't possibly have actually happened, that would have been defying science. That would have been God intervening in history with a miracle, wouldn't it? But Peter puts an end to that right away. He says, we were not eagerly pursuing in obedience cleverly invented myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Greek grammar used when he says the power and coming makes those two concepts, power and coming, inseparably joined like handcuffs that have been welded together. You could almost translate it the powerful coming. He says they weren't following Vince when they made it known the powerful coming. You can only come with power like that if Jesus Christ were true God. And he says we were made eyewitnesses of his majesty. That would be his divine majesty. Who's the we? Obviously, the apostles. Now, let's not forget that Judas betrayed the Lord. So there was a guy who was part of a wider group of followers who had also seen Jesus's majesty. That would be like that guy, Matthias. Oh, and let's not also forget there'll be another apostle. This guy named Saul who was on the way to persecute Christians when Jesus shows him his majesty on the road. And Jesus also would later teach him directly things like the Lord's Supper. And let's not forget that that apostle, Apostle Paul, writing in his epistle to the Corinthians, mentions that there were hundreds, 500 to 600 eyewitnesses of Jesus' ascension. But the original apostles themselves would have seen his majesty well before the Mount of Transfiguration when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Now, she had just died. When he raised the widow of Nain's young son, the young man, from the dead. And after the Mount of Transfiguration, they would see it when Jesus raised Lazarus, who had been in the tomb for so many days that what happens when you leave meat out in a hot uh, day and, it's, and there's, there's no refrigeration, he would have been decomposing. And when Lazarus comes out of the grave, he doesn't even stink from decomposition. Any miracle they witnessed was clear to them that he was God. And in fact, let's not forget about a month, month and a half after the Mount of Transfiguration, which Peter's going to get into as a specific example, they saw Jesus raise himself. They saw, And we know the Father also raised him in the Holy Spirit. They saw the ascended Lord and they saw him ascend to heaven. Too many times, over and over again, did they see that majestic glory. And so we're told, indeed, he received honor and glory from God the Father... When a distinctive voice was carried along to him by means of the majestic glory. He's talking about that cloud that settled over that mountain and spoke. Now, this is the second time in all of human history that we can be confident that God the Father spoke. Anytime before the incarnation when God speaks, it's the pre-incarnate Christ, right? So this is the second time in history that we can be absolutely confident. It's God the Father speaking. And what does he say? This is my beloved son. Whoa, let's stop right there. Peter, James, and John heard God the Father himself say, this is my beloved son. If you are the son of God the Father, you are God. That's all the proof we need, right? But he continues, he says very emphatically, I myself am well pleased in him. He uses the aorist tense in the Greek. In in this particular case, it's saying, I was pleased with him in the past, I'm pleased with him now, and I will remain pleased with him. That is such a comfort for you and I. It's impossible for Jesus Christ, because he's not just true man, he's true God, to do anything but please God the Father. He took on human flesh so he could be our substitute. As a human being, he could fill the pains of temptation. And as a human being, he could suffer the punishment our sins deserve. But as true God, God's the Son, he would never succumb to those pains of temptation. And as God, his death, the death of the God-man on the cross, would be powerful enough not just to atone for all of my sins, but all of your sins all of the sins of everyone in this room, all of the sins of everyone in the world. So the only thing that damns someone is that they do not believe that Jesus Christ is true God who became true man to save them. And so when God the Father says, with him I am well pleased, boy, is there a lot of comfort. Not just for the apostles who said they didn't quite seem to understand what was going on that day, but the Holy Spirit would remind them later. We'll get into that in a minute. It's absolute comfort for you and I. And so Peter continues with verse 18. And we ourselves heard this very voice from heaven, which was carried along with him when we were on that holy mountain. Peter, James, and John undeniably heard it. Now, with all of this, he mentions the eyewitnesses of his majesty and everything. We got to say, in a court of law, are there enough eyewitnesses to convict Jesus of Nazareth of being God? Now, we would say yes, but to explain all the more, you know, Peter would deny his Lord on, on Monday, Thursday, he would deny his Lord three times. Prior to that, he rushed forward to defend his Lord with the sword, and we find out poor Peter wasn't so great at wielding his sword either. But Peter never denied his Lord again. The Lord used that to strengthen them. And every apostle, with the exception of the apostle John, dies a martyr death. The Roman government is the one who put most of them, not all of them, like Herod put uh, James, the brother of John, to death. But every one of them has the opportunity, and it's this simple. You deny that you saw the resurrected Lord, and you offer a pinch of incense to Caesar and will let you live. Every one of those men refuse to do so. Now, if you have one person who is given the option, deny what you're saying and we will let you live a liar would quickly deny it, wouldn't they? Unless they were not right in the head, had a mental disorder. Can you say that all those guys, and remember there was a wider group of disciples who saw it as well, and many of them were put to death, and they too refused to deny what they saw. And that apostle John, remember 90 years old that man was put in exile on the island of Patmos, and he could have denied all of this and never been isolated like that. Yeah, the way those men would face death rather than deny their Lord gives you certainty that their eyewitness was absolutely certain. So how can we be sure of Jesus's godly glory? The apostles were eyewitnesses. They saw too many miracles. They saw the resurrected Lord. The three of them got to see him on the Mount of Transfiguration. There's just too much evidence there. So brothers and sisters in Christ, that gives us great comfort. But I have to tell you, uh, at least twice a year, usually can't go more than six months, and often way more than that, because of our website, I get an email from somebody who claims that they're getting prophecies from God, which in other words means they're claiming to be a prophet. Now, usually I don't have to read two sentences in that email before I know This person, they may think they're getting prophecies from God. They may be, you know, they may honestly be convinced of it. But I can already tell that they're not prophets from the Lord. How can I tell that? Well, Peter tells us in verse 19, and we keep on having, the Greek word here is comparative. It literally is as more steadfast, the prophetic word. We keep on having as more steadfast the prophetic word. More steadfast than what? Peter's not saying that the eyewitness of the apostles and the other the wider branch of disciples, that it was not dependable. What he's saying is even more steadfast than that an even stronger anchor and even firmer foundation is that we have the prophetic word. And he continues by saying, to which you continue well, when you continue holding firmly to it, like a light shining in a dismal place until whenever the day may dawn and the morning star may raise up in your hearts. Here Peter's talking about cling, continue clinging as you already are, keep clinging to the word of God until when? Until Christ returns when the morning star dawns. But it's interesting what he talks about a light in a dismal place. Literally the Greek word is a dark and filthy place. Have you ever been, for example, in a basement with no windows when suddenly the electricity goes out? Do you happen to know, know you got a flashlight in your pocket or your cell phone's there and you turn on the light? You don't walk away from that, do you? Especially like if you're in a dark cavern or a cave, you need that to get out of there. A dark and dismal place. You see, in our natural condition, we live in a world that is plumb full of the devil's propaganda. He does not care what you believe. So long as it does not, is not believing that Jesus Christ is true God who became true man who did 100% of the work for your salvation. He'll let you believe everything there as long as you believe that you have to do 1% of the work the devil is happy. And so we have that word. And this is why he says you continue doing well when you continue holding firmly to it. He's writing to Christians who are already holding to the word. This is why you so joyously came to hear a sermon today and worship the Lord. This is why you so joyously come to Bible study. And I love the way you guys dig in. And some of you would say, Pastor, what about this application? What about that? You're holding firmly to it. You got that light and you're not going to let the devil swallow you down. For The more we hold to it, the more we understand it, the more we're able to fend off the devil with his propaganda and his lies. And so he continues explaining something about that word that is more steadfast than even the eyewitness of the apostles and the wider group of disciples. In verse 20, he says, primarily knowing this very thing, Namely, that all prophecy of scripture does not come to be by one's own explanation. Now, the Greek word used for explanation is actually literally unloosening. You have a very complicated knot. I used to do this to my dad all the time. I have no idea how I would do it. But then my kids did it to me as well as I became a father when they were younger. You're casting out your fishing line over and over again. And all of a sudden, wham, there's this complicated knot. Sometimes we'd hiked into these lakes Dad would sit there for a long time trying to unloosen this complicated knot so that I could continue fishing. Well, the old prophecy of Scripture comes from somebody sitting there saying, Wow, this is difficult to understand. Well, here's my own personal interpretation as if it all relies on me. Let me give you a very good example from history. Martin Luther, when he gets to studying the Scripture, he's having a hard time understanding Psalm 47. He's saying, this has got to be a, an alien righteousness. It cannot be our own. We're not righteous. And, and he gets to study in the book of Romans. And, and, and he says, it, it's Christ's righteousness credited to us. This is the only way this can make sense. But he was smart enough to say, but I can't be the only one. If I'm the only one who understands it this way, I've got to be wrong. So he gets digging around. Now, remember, he's an Augustinian monk. So he goes to the favorite uh, ancient church father of the Augustinians St. Augustine of Hippo. And Augustine had already had some ideas of work righteousness in him, but he reads Augustine again and he says, Oh, this is exactly how Augustine understands this. And he digs more and he says, Wow, you get before Augustine and you get less and less of this work righteousness. It dawns on him like the light shining in a dark place. When we entered the medieval ages... The Christian church had bought into the devil's propaganda and darkness and became work-righteous. Anybody you read before that makes it clear that we're not saved by our own works. So Martin Luther didn't like it when the people started calling them Lutherans. Before that, they called themselves evangelicals, which would be gospel-centered people. Because he didn't want a cult following. And a true Lutheran understands you let Scripture interpret Scripture and make sure that you don't have some novel or new interpretation. Why? Because the Scriptures are inspired. And that's what Peter says in verse 21. For prophecy was never carried along by the will of a man, but men from God spoke while they were being carried along under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I love the way he says that. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit. On Transfiguration Sunday, we end Epiphany, and then on Ash Wednesday, we begin the journey to the cross. And this year, we'll be using the prophet Isaiah, starting at Isaiah 52, verse 13, as he talks about the suffering servant. But one of the things that's neat about translating Isaiah, where he stands out over a lot of the prophets, not only does Isaiah prophesy, not only does he have some of the most quoted scriptures in the New Testament uh, of the coming Messiah... Isaiah does it all in Hebrew poetry. So if we were better at singing Hebrew, we could sing it. You take a look at uh, the Apostle Paul. In this epistle of Peter, Peter says Paul can be difficult to understand. Why? Paul was studying to be a rabbi. He speaks some difficult Greek. I always have the toughest slug translating Paul. Peter, or or, I'm sorry, Luke Luke was a doctor. And when you translate Luke's Greek, you can tell he was a doctor. But Peter and John, they were fishermen. Their Greek is very simple. The Holy Spirit took every man with his background, with his gifts, and he said, if the Holy Spirit said, no, I don't want you to write that, they didn't write that. But you can tell the differences among them because he used their gifts. So it wasn't mere dictation as if the Holy Spirit stood over their shoulder and said, now, write for, then write prophecy, then write was, then write never. It wasn't that. And he reminded them of things. Remember, Jesus had told the apostles before he died, almost a month before he died, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'll be betrayed by and handed over the Sanhedrin and the chief priests. I'll be put to death and on the third day rise again. And what does Peter do? Peter rebukes him and Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. You would think this would stand in their ears when Jesus is placed in the tomb. Ah, Sunday. But it did it. They had forgotten it. And it's why Jesus had to send the Holy Spirit, which he did uh, on Pentecost Sunday to remind them. So what Peter here is saying is, yeah, the eyewitnesses of the apostles, that's great. But even better is the very word through which the Holy Spirit worked. He inspired it. And when you hear that word, he enters your heart to create a new person that clings to it, believes, yes, Jesus is true God who became true man and he's my savior. This is different. There's a big cult that we deal with in Wyoming where they'll show up at your door and they'll say, do you want to know that our book, our religious book is true? Pray to God and they will give you a burning in the bosom and take Pepto-Bismol, it'll probably go away. No, that's a terrible joke. But, But truly, we don't turn to feelings. Peter says, stay in the word, keep clinging to it, because there the Holy Spirit creates faith. He inspired the word, he works through the word, and he nourishes and sustains your faith. How can we be sure of Jesus' godly glory? We have the inspired word of God, which says so. As simple as children singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So how can I tell when I get those emails that they're not prophets? I usually don't get two sentences, and they'll bring up something that contradicts the scripture. This person's not a prophet if they contradict scripture. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the joy is we can be certain of Jesus's godly glory. We have the apostles and, and the wider group of disciples who were eyewitnesses. We have the inspired word of God which tells us so. So that gives you, the Holy Spirit works through that to give you a steadfast certainty. Jesus is true God who is your substitute, so your sins are forgiven. You can be absolutely certain of that, and you are saved. Amen. Now grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen.